On the podcast today, we're going to speak about the Wheel of Samsara and reincarnation. A lot of people asked from last week, can we talk more about the Wheel of Samsara framework? And also, when we speak about that, we have to also speak about reincarnation. And we also have to speak about the jiva, right? We have to speak about the individual themselves or ourselves. Mm -hmm. So... For those who aren't familiar with samsara, samsara is a concept in Hinduism and Buddhism that we find, and samsara is this cycle that we're all caught on, this life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth cycle. They call it wheel of life. The wheel of life, exactly. Yeah, so we're on this wheel, uh, kind of like a hamster on a (laughs) (laughs) hamster on the wheel, right? We're on this treadmill of life. And we find ourselves caught in this wheel of samsara framework when we over-identify with our persona. That keeps us locked into this illusion of a separate reality that's bound to time. And if we're going to use Buddhism, Buddhist terminology, then nirvana is escaping the wheel of samsara. Nirvana is a recognition of the eternal, actually. It's a coming back into an abidance within that infinite reality, that one reality. You know, one is a bad term because one implies two, but that non-dual reality. And so that's basically what nirvana is. So it's a, it's a recognition of that, and that's a way of kind of, in a sense, jumping off the wheel of samsara. Easier said than done, right? You can't just say that and theorize about that, and that is going to happen. You know, that's not quite how Eastern spirituality works because there has to be a lot of self-observation. There has to be self-work done on a deep level, shadow work, all sorts of work done on yourself to come to those higher states of consciousness. And I think uh, you have to have a bit of a belief in this uh, kind of concept because a lot of people have this idea of life. It's just a linear form of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just live once and um, once you die, you go to either heaven or hell or this kind of... um, concept mm-hmm. of life which is i mean predominantly from um, christianity yeah. and a lot of yeah a lot of people don't believe in reincarnation mm-hmm. but to practice the eastern wisdom tradition you need to have a belief in concept like reincarnation not exactly it doesn't have to be um, reincarnation i don't think but mm-hmm. if you have a belief of like life as in this is not just once there must be something more after you die kind of idea Mm. then i guess you're on a right track 100 percent. well that's again a big difference again between eastern and western uh, spirituality right like there's the many lives theory of the east and there's a one linear life of of the west so the, the East are speaking about a cyclical reality. They talk about time cyclically with the Yugas. There's, everything's a cycle. So everything is a, is a function of nature. So nature itself is cyclical. And so they project that onto consciousness and everything itself, time and you know so forth and so on. We have an illusion of experiencing reality linearly. So that from an Eastern perspective, if they were to look at Western religions, they would say that oh, they've just been duped into thinking that life is linear. So you, you're born and then you, then you die. And there's just one de facto life. And that's, no, that's not the way it is. There's, 
many lives. And like you said, but there has to be a belief in that many lives theory. And some individuals, many individuals, have taken that to the 10th degree, right? So we have like the great yogis of the past and the rishis, and we even have the, the Tibetan monks. And even if we go over into Egypt, they took this seriously as well. So yeah, best, best example is obviously in, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where the practitioners would actually go into the death state and then uh, to explore the nature of that and then to come back. And so there were these kind of these three levels in, the, in what they explained, the, the monks in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, not just Buddhist monks, but also like uh, people uh, in Bonn, the, 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 tradition, uh, the traditional shamanism of Tibet, where they would go through these three stages. And the first stages is after, well, what they explain is when we die, you go into this stage where it's, you, you're in the, the complete non-dual reality. So you get a glimpse, you're, you're in that. And like they say, it's hard, you can't describe that. You know, a lot of people call it, as in the Tao Te Ching, the darkness within darkness, or, you know, there's all of these things, or other people think about it as some sort of light, but they say get out of that sort of ideas, because that's obviously visually oriented. This is, this is a completely different reality, probably beyond vision or, or, or uh, you know, sound or all sorts of sense. It's beyond the senses, right? So, and so, you go into that realm, that non-dual realm, that the source of our all of our existence, the whole universe. We can't really describe that, can't give it a name. And then what happens then is if your karma is strong, if your jiva is strong, your persona, then that itself is a vibration. And so you'll sense that and then that'll as soon as you sense that karma sort of wane on you, you go to the second stage, which is kind of like not really, but sort of like purgatory, where you're kind of in this mm-hmm. realm where if you can bring your mind back to that reality, that stillness, you still have a chance of going back into the non-dual source realm. But then if it intensifies, then you go into this third realm where the vibrations are very strong. It's very hard to get yourself out of that mm-hmm. place. And then they say when you're in that realm, then you, you get sucked back into a womb, mm-hmm. you know. So then coming back to this world, coming back to this world again. Yes. In whatever form, you know, they're not saying particularly human, human, Mm -hmm. but whatever form it is, you will experience it as a form of consciousness, Mm -hmm. whatever that will be, you know, so that they, they explain that, you know what I mean? And and the Egyptians speak about similar things. Mm -hmm. And obviously the yogis and the rishis and that speak about a similar reality too. It's all explained differently using different languages and so forth and so on. But the technology that had developed from that, and what I mean by technology is the inner technology, mm-hmm. is this kind of wheel of samsara framework that we have that yeah. in general most of the traditions use. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see samskaras, vasanas, and karma almost across the board in, in uh, most Indian traditions. Yes. It's quite interesting that... Um, in Korea, and not just in Korea, I guess it's uh, many Eastern nations uh, which follows Buddhism strictly. Mm. They like after someone's death, right? Um, they they kind of uh, give a give respect for that individual's death for forty nine days, mm. Mm. and that. It does, this uh, doesn't get practiced by everybody. Mm. It just sticks strictly for people who follow Buddhism. Mm. And these people believe that 
when they give respect for 49 days, the process of the three steps they go through after death is being guided by their respect and worshipping and, and love that they give to that person will help them to liberate the spirit mm -hmm. of that being and then eventually oh, will help to free the spirit so that not to kind of come, come back. back. Again, I didn't really know when I was younger mm. that, that so many people are doing the 49 days paying respect because my family doesn't follow Buddhism. Mm. So my family don't ha doesn't have that sort of um, tradition in the family. Yeah. So I wasn't very aware of it. Mm. But then when we come across the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, how they uh, do the ceremonies of, of death and things like that, mm. and then it comes up that 49 days, uh, that something kind of uh, triggered in my mind that there must mm. be something related to what I saw when I was a child, you mm. know. Mm. It's quite interesting that they actually have the like actual um, days that they pay respect for the dead mm. and to free that spirit yeah. eventually uh, that's quite interesting it's really interesting yeah mm -hmm. because they also say that that experience that i spoke about with the three stages though it, they say if one of us are experiencing it it may seem like some sort of moment outside of time but they would say it is around that 49 day period so for you know because we are in time here as humans but in that realm there's it's beyond time and space so but it's it's kind of like you know interstellar you know when matthew mcconaughey went to that planet and he's there for only a few minutes but in on earth it's like for like 50 years 50 years yeah. Like that. yeah so that's kind of what we're talking mm -hmm. about is outside of that at that spectrum and they would say it is 49 days and it's interesting because a lot of not a lot of some buddhist traditions believe that the buddha meditated for 49 days under oh. the under the bodhi tree so you have this recurring 49 you know this number there is some like a mathematical reason why behind it yeah but definitely it's quite interesting it is interesting yeah yeah and so you see that as you know some uh, also on the other spectrum some buddhist traditions think that he he just meditated one night under the bodhi tree and mm -hmm. which is kind of more of the accepted view because i guess meditating and sitting in one posture for 49 days is you're leaning more into mythology there you're not leaning into that the Buddha was a real historical figure. Nevertheless, what we're talking about is that process. So, and like you said, like in that in the Buddhist tradition, when you do say farewell to a loved one, you have that forty-nine days of not even really grieving. You're, you're, it's like you're, like you said, you're trying to elevate that spirit out of that realm, out of that karmic field that they may be st stuck in. So you're you're sending you know, good energy, positive, mm. positive vibrations towards that being to try and elevate them out of that, that sphere. That's a lovely tradition, actually. And like, mm. and, but, and, and also maybe true. I mean, too, because like, if we look at from the, especially the Tibetan or the yogic or the, the Rishi perspective of this, this realm, right? So. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, like, um, for that being who is going through the process may experience that it's like just like a 
going for like five seconds or something, mm -hmm. but for Earth time, the 49 days, mm. and just like when we dream at night, right? Exactly. Like dream, you dream of something and it goes so fast, but it's already the morning. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit like that. Like a two-minute dream and it's eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, it appears a two-minute yeah, dream. Yeah. It's very interesting realm when you stay away from this um, version of time and space. Mm -hmm. Then you go through a completely different um, system mm -hmm. of time that you, where you don't even feel there is such thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that's what happens when you go beyond those sorts of time-bound karmic effects. You're seeing like, so when you go into that non-dual realm, you're beyond time, beyond space, beyond matter, mm. you're beyond everything. So you're... you're new whatever it is, experiences that reality the way it truly is, mm -hmm. where we're experiencing a version of reality which is time-bound, bound to space, bound to, time, bound to matter, mm -hmm. right? And so it's a limited version of reality. But what we are talking about here today is, you know, that beyond that samsara is that, there's that place, is that infinite reality, which actually... You know, according to the traditions, is actually within samsara as we speak, but it's it's a, it's a matter of perception. It's a matter of overcoming the, the wheel of samsara framework, which we, we we spoke a little bit about last week, but we'll speak more about today. So, which makes up the persona, makes up the jiva. Yeah, that's I think very important point that you mentioned perspective. Yeah. When you have belief in that uh, will of samsara framework, your perception towards your own life is completely changed mm. rather than thinking of life as a linear and just you live once and you die and that's it mm. type of thinking. Yeah. It gives you completely different outlook to life mm. and you give a different meaning and purpose in life, so to say. So... Um, yeah, whether that's real or not, that's not love for debate. It's mm. just um, what that um, uh, concept, Eastern well, wisdom, wisdom tradition gives us is that um, that perspective, mm. how the outlook of life, that what changes yeah. completely. Mm. Well, that's you raise a good point because the thing is that what we see in the world now, especially through entrepreneurship and people who are motivational speakers, which is a Western phenomenon, it's all built on you should use this life well because this is your only life. Mm. So you get to work, you know, so to speak. But if you look at it from, like if we're in India, you got time. you got time. Not this life, maybe the next. It's okay. Ch chill, chill. Yeah. You see? And it takes out individuality too because, see, heightened individuality comes from a single life theory, so that this is this only life. Whereas when you go to India, whenever why, why a lot of people are shanti in India, and why a lot of people are very present, and well, you know, there's a lot of chaos going on. But when you when you know Indians personally, and they're very calm, and they have a certain grace and way of doing things, that's based on the many life theory. Like you know, if I don't get it done this life, it's okay. There's many to come. Mm. You know what I mean? Like. Why start this project now when I can do it my next life? <laughs> and, and most of us in the West are like rushing around to start the project on Monday or Tuesday and wanting to finish it by Friday. And they're like, Shanti, don't worry about it. We can do it 
next week, next life, don't matter. So that, that, that adds a sense of calm to your life too that a lot of Western people don't, don't experience. And so, you know, that's a big thing, especially in the world now, as you know, with entrepreneurship so high, you have a lot of motivational speakers telling people, use this life well, you know, they're trying to motivate you to, and there's actually nothing wrong with that, you know, but from an Eastern perspective, what's the hurry? You know, and also don't get too far ahead of yourself that, if you do achieve all of these things that you're going to achieve, that that's going to first lead to happiness and that that's going to uh, be all there is on your journey, so to speak, because, you know, the next life, have you how much karma did you accumulate in trying to achieve those goals and so forth and so on? How, much, how many samskaras do you have embedded in your subconscious? There's so many things to talk about, right? So... Yeah, again, in that realm, all comes down to your um, self-interested way of thinking isn't it it is yeah. like it's somewhat it's kind of interesting that to think that this it's this it life is the only life the single life theory mm. can kind of motivate you even more mm. to walk on strict spiritual path mm. in a way mm-hmm. but if you were to think that you need to achieve something to be, I don't know, special to to regard to be regarded yourself as a special person by other people and mm. things like that. Mm. Then obviously it wouldn't work that way. It's counter-effective. Well, if a Vedantist heard, say, a Western motivational entrepreneur speaker, they'd be like, "Oh, yeah, sure. I better get, into, I better get into action," and because this is my last life, <laughs> they look at it differently. Like yeah. we have to, we have to make this our last life. Mm. And that's also another uh, thing within Eastern yeah. spirituality, right? Like your, your emphasis to make this your last life. So even if you saw it from a single life theory perspective, okay, if I only have this life, I better get, I better start my sadhana straight away. I got to get to work. You got to get to yeah, work straight yeah. away. Like my sadhana should begin now. Mm. If you're listening to this, it should be beginning now. So that's what should be happening. I guess the the motivation and intention behind it is completely different, then, isn't it? That, yeah, of course. That's what it is. That's mm. what it is. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So it's about coming. Yeah, so they're completely two different motivations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, right. so yeah. one is about acquiring a material way of life that is affluent, and the other one is moksha. Mm. So it's completely different. But again. It, this raises a point and, and, and also I have a video about this where uh, about samsara where a lot of people within especially Buddhism talk about ah we leave it to the next life you know I'm just accumulating good karma now and so forth and so on whereas the higher elements of Eastern spiritualities make sure that this is your last life you know f- focus on your sadhana in this life and get rid of a lot of the attachments and desires and, and so forth and so on now don't wait till two lives time or you know if you have a the thing is that and this is the thing about the wheel of samsara framework it doesn't matter if you want to believe you don't have a latent desire or or you know tenancy it doesn't matter if it's there the the universe knows what's going on so you're going to come back to try and exhaust that desire you know what i mean so you have to really get to work and you have to understand yourself at like to to the bottom of, of your own being because if if, it, if that's lagging it, 
it will be exposed. And so we have to talk then about the Wheel of Samsara framework. So as I mentioned last week, we have Samskaras, Vasanas, Karma. This makes up the Jiva, right? Jiva being the persona system, if we're to use psycho psychological terms. And Samskaras being the subconscious, being all of that storehouse that we've, that we've accumulated through our life, the conditioning, socialization, you know, education, everything, right? Every imprint. You walk down the street, uh, someone throws rubbish at you, that's going to be an imprint. Or even if someone's throwing rubbish at themselves, it's still going to be an imprint because you're going to have experienced that. Anything that happens to you. Exactly. Yeah. So anything within the experience. Leave the mark. Right? Yeah. Mm. Anything within the experiential realm. And so then that affects your vasanas, which is your latent tendencies and habitual ways. And those vasanas are what... Uh, are the impulse for your karma, for your action, and your unconscious actions. So when you act unconsciously stupid, like sometimes, we, which we all do, like we might react to a situation which was not in our best interest and not in the best interest of the other person, that is just an unconscious karmic uh, action that's been motivated by the habits and tendencies of asanas, which has been fueled by samskaras. a samskara, like that has not been exhausted. And so... When we talk about the Wheel of Samsara framework, that is actually the Wheel of Samsara because what, what, what you're doing there is that your Samskaras are informing your Vasanas and your Vasanas are informing your action and then it has a reverse effect. You see, you act a certain way and then that's going to affect the Vasanas and then it's going to create a Samskara mm. that's going to just sit there. We, we are basically breaking that cycle we are attempting to break that cycle, yes, mm -hmm. on the spiritual path. Yeah. And that breaks the, the total cycle of the wheel, well, for your being, of the wheel of samsara. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Because that's what you're doing. You're trying to exhaust or you're trying to transform your samskaras so that your karma, when they say transcend your karma, what they mean is you're transcending that action that's based on the jiva. So... In the Bhagavad Gita, for example, when uh, Krishna says to Arjun about Nishkarma karma, which is similar to Uwe, which is like acting without being attracted to the fruits of your action. So you basically just become an aperture for the Tao or a limb of Shiva, to use that terminology, to act uh, in the world. And so that's when you start to transcend your karma. But you can only get that there like you said, when we reverse the cycle and we work on the samskara level, which then affects our varsanas, which are then our karma, then we don't accumulate karma because you can only accumulate karma when you're a jiva, when you're identified with a person. So then once you break the will of samsara, you break the cycle, then you no longer exist as jiva. Is it, yeah. Yeah, no more jiva. Mm. Jiva's dead. Actually, jiva never was. Mm. From the you know the Vedic perspective, the jiva is the the illusion of Maya. But you kind of keep reinforcing this illusion that you think you are, so to speak. So when you haven't expose the jiva then then that's what continues to live life after life but it's not guy young as guy young it's the tendencies and the, 
the habits and all of the karmic stock that's been accumulated in your samskaras, which is kind of like an energy, right? It's a like an energy base. And that energy base finds a particular womb that has the same sort of energy, no matter what race, creed, you know, wealth, what I mean, it doesn't matter. It'll find that particular energy base or whatever being based on that thing. So the Buddhists, like we were mentioning before, are kind of the people saying I'm trying to accumulate good karmic stock are not in some sense it's kind of cute like they're not doing anything particularly wrong but when people think of a good life and they think of coming back in a fortuitous life they think of being wealthy and you know and, and so you have to go also beyond materialism you can't be focused like that because in some sense if you were to come back in a good life you'd probably come back into monkhood or you know be a yogi or if, we, if we're looking at it from an Eastern perspective, that would be more of a fortuitous life. I think how people identify the reincarnation, what triggers reincarnation and mm. having a good deed and whatnot, is based on creating good karma, mm. but in a way try to be a very moral moral and uh, righteous way, right? Yeah. And to be kind to others and mm. um, you act uh, appropriately and help others when they need help and mm. just become trying to be a compassionate uh, person, right? Yeah, of That's all well and good, but I, um, I don't know if that type of effort will go deep enough to tap into your samskaras. But I, th I think what triggers that cycle keeps going is to have that samskara, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And changing your action actually literally have no direct connection to change, uh, changing your samskaras, mm. cleanse your samskaras, so to say. So I think we need to go much deeper than just cre creating good karmic stock. Yeah, exactly. And it depends on what you mean by changing your action. Like if you're changing your action just to be moral, yeah. then that you're still associated with a person. So you want the person's life <clears throat> in the next life to have a good life, whatever... The individual deems as good. So for, probably for a lot of people, it's having a lot of wealth, having a lot of notoriety, mm. you know, respect. Obviously in the East, that's kind of a stupid way to look at it because you, could, you should be dissolving the eye. You shouldn't be trying to enhance the eye. But this is where a lot of people get confused because they think about, oh, I'm just, I'm just accumulating good karma. But what, and then when you ask them, what do you mean by that? Because you, you expose their intention and their motivations so their intentions and their motivations are materialistically driven and i think a lot of us are not quite aware of that far i don't think no. because what society put in a good light is good right that's yeah. what most of us think mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so that uh, whatever perceived being moral and good and ethical mm -hmm. are good right <laughs> so that you want to follow that path without realizing deeper uh, aspect of that right yeah 
Well, that's a good point because the thing is, is like, and I wanted to mention that to what you were mentioning before too, when you were mentioning action, um, is that the morality of society, the morality of your religion, the morality of any uh, organized or constructed perspective has nothing to do with the transcending the will of samsara framework because the nature has its own morality but it's not it it has nothing to do with socialization it does in a sense for example if we're killing someone we naturally feel no good when we you know when we harm someone else not just killing but if we harm someone else we don't really well there's a few psychopaths out there but you know what i mean in general most people don't and this lends into Mencius's philosophy where he kind of introduced this natural morality that exists. So when he was explaining that everyone is fundamentally good, he used the boy beside the well analogy. So if we saw the boy fall in the well, what's that natural feeling we all have inside is to try and save, do whatever, and not even care about our own self-preservation. We're just doing whatever we can to save the boy. And that's a great ex illustration because that, shows us that you know we are fundamentally good but it also shows that there's a natural morality so when we think about accumulating good karma and so forth and so on that's how we need to be thinking we, we shouldn't be thinking as in just you know doing good deeds in society and and having uh, fake compassion and empathy for other people it has to arise naturally it has to be a natural experience because in the end of the day all of us being a part of this one energy that we call Tao or Brahman, it knows if you're, if you're, you know, if you're putting on a show or not. I think the, the true act of um, true real sense of right action is outcome of cleansing out the samskaras. Mm -hmm. yep. Then it, that's the only way it can be authentic. You can't, well, you can, you can try to be kind and compassionate towards yeah. other people, of yeah. course. And, of course, we need to try, try to be that way, mm. consciously. Yeah. But that also comes from, the, that also is the outcome of cleansing out our mm. psychic, you know, yeah. imprints. Well, if someone was not, you know, for example, if someone was not compassionate or not forgiving, then instantly if they started trying to practice that, that's a good thing for yeah. them. And then hopefully that would become a natural response, you know. But we see a lot of people in the world who are still, it's, you know, it's very hypocritical. Like they may say that they give a lot of money to a charity and so forth and so on. And then you see their 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 personal and actions and the way that when the things that they do in the world you know a lot of rich we can look at rich people like that right they, they give a lot of money to uh charity. charity but then you see what they do to the environment and you see they fund certain things that are detrimental to pop, large populations in the world and so it's very hypocritical and it's out of sync so it's more again they are attached to a self-image and so what i would say to what you're alluding to is that Yes, it's good that if you don't have that about yourself, practice it. But don't be attached to like an image of yourself. And this is what's important about the Nishkarma Karma aspect, not being attached to the fruits of your own action. Because when you practice that, then you are doing things just because that's what needs to be done. 
you're not doing it to take a photo on Instagram like you're feeding, you know, giving food to a beggar and look, look, look what I'm doing because you see this online. That's horrendous. You know what I mean? When you see people doing that, you're like, oh, no, you're trying too hard. When you and I, we know hundreds of people who are out there, no social media, but they're just doing the right thing because that's what needs to be done. They don't, you know, they don't have any glorified campaign behind themselves. They're just doing it of their own accord. They are being like what Mencius said. They're, they're just acting from that place. And that's hard actually to give to someone because we live in, especially in this day and age, because everyone's doing things for notoriety. Like I said, but the Instagram photo of giving food to beggars and, and stuff like this. Yeah, we want recognition. People want recognition. Look at me. Look how pious I am. And this again is it. This again is a Western thing, like you know, also tied to Christianity because you know Christianity has this very high pious attitude, um, and they base everything on this very pious attitude. That's why they look at Eastern spirituality as it as it's evil or something like this, because Eastern spirituality is very hard to figure out, and and it can have darker elements and this and that because you need to explore the darker elements of the psyche. When you have this shiny veneer, you know beneath that there's a, you know, it's toxic, you know. So that's what we have to center on is we have to come back to that spiritual process of the Wheel of Samskara framework to, to get rid of all of that fakeness, that falsity and hypocrisy that most of us have. It's a, it's a huge task. Like you said, there's um, samskara itself has a certain element of the energy, mm. certain quality mm. of that energy, mm. so that to transcend that uh, quality, it'll take mm. a lot of work. Yeah, right? of course. Mm. It's not just going to happen overnight. Mm. Again, like we really alluded to a little bit about it last week, but like you need to. Uh, apply the tools that actually help transform the the samskara. So now, when we when we talk about the wheel of sam, samsara tools to to affect the samskaras, we have to look at viveka and vairagya. So viveka is a discernment, so a constant observation of what is real and what is not real. Now, from that perspective, what is real is Brahman. Is this the ultimate reality? Is there's only this one reality? What is unreal is the jiva, <clears throat> sorry, who thinks that there's a dualistic world. Maya. Maya, yeah. And so when you when you think that, you're constantly self-interested and constantly in a state of self-preservation. So that's a state of evolution that you know was beneficial. Thousands of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, not beneficial no more because we're at such a developed state now that we can contemplate the nature of the universe and we can live in harmony with one another. We live in that great opportunity at the moment, but we're squandering that because we're still connected to those evolutionary energies of self-interest and self-preservation. And so when we apply <clears throat> Viveka, then you're constantly... You know, you're in a discernment thing, but what what enhances that also is the vairagya aspect, the dispassion towards the world, the non-reactiveness. And what that does is, is it has an effect on your action. So, what you're trying to do there is not change your actions to be 
pious or moral, you're just ceasing action. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if I, if you said something to me that you know evoked a samskara or a, or a vasana, then when I feel that intense energy to act in a certain way, I just withdraw. I just go, no, no, no. This is what pratyahara is, right? The withdrawal of the senses. So that sensation, that feeling, I just like, no, 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 I'm not. I'll, I'll let it, the fire burn inside. And see, a lot of people, you know, especially in psychology, say, oh, but you need to express yourself sometimes and this and that. Sometimes, but not all the time. If someone says something to you that evokes a certain sensation, like if it evokes a vasana, like an intense vasana where it's like burning on the inside, that's more so a problem with you than the other person. The other person can be an idiot for sure, but what they say shouldn't actually evoke an old samskara because we spoke about this many times on the podcast. Our samskaras identify with situations, but it's not always correct. It, it, it intuits a situation that it thinks is exactly the same as a past what happened in the past. past. And they're all different. Each and every situation is different. You know, if we look at it on a micro level in, in detail, they're all different. But it senses a certain uh, event mm. and then it acts accordingly. Mm. So you said something to me and I'm just, ah, what the hell are you talking about and this and that. Where if I just observed it, and let the fire burn, as they, as the great teachers say. This is slowly like you're slowly turning the screws in the heart of the of the ego. You're slowly killing the ego. Do you think that samskara also could be from your like personality or temperament? <clears throat> Not necessarily from just experience of things. Yeah, of course. Of course. But what the East will say is what makes up the personality and temperament. Right. So you got to look at then at genetics. you got to look at your conditioning. Then we are going way far back uh, when we were newborn babies. When we were newborn babies, right? exactly. Like how, how did we raise when we were completely unconscious, when we had no faculty of um, being conscious, right? Well, there's scientific research that suggests that from zero to four and this is just that's a generalization it could be older or younger for each for particular biologies mm. but your subconscious is completely on so a lot of there has been research that someone has a sense of trauma in their life and they don't know where it's from but it, ha it was from when they were in that, in, in that infant, in that infant yeah. period mm. which is crazy when you think about it right so if you if you had uh, experienced physical abuse as an infant you don't know anything about it when you come become fully conscious as you get older but whatever happens to you something triggers triggers yeah that's a samskara mm. that's why it's so difficult like you try to go as far as you can mm. but there are still something left right at the bottom <laughs> well yogis try to go back into past life samskaras well, that's right <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they don't just want to just do it. Oh, yeah, that's what happened in my infancy. But what happened before, before that? that? 
So you're getting to a really yeah. heightened level. And there. one before that. One before that, yeah, yeah. What was I like in my infancy in my fourth life and a half? Hmm. Yeah. So and this is my eleventh lifetime. <laughs> so we're getting way out there. Yeah. But yeah, you raise a good point because I think that the argument from psychology would be, but don't we have personality traits that would lend to samskaras? And yeah, for sure, there's per- personality types, right? But a personality type is not really linked. Well, I w- shouldn't say not really linked, but in generally, generally, it's not linked to samskara because your personality type kind of is just the way you are in in this form, right? But you can be there can be different personality types, but they can still be peaceful personality types, but they act a certain way. In, in this life, right? Well, they have certain tendencies. But tendencies, you know, again, tendencies, again, are, are temperaments are linked to more so vasanas, mm. temperaments. So you're like, you have, for example, uh, your father may have a short temper. Mm. You're likely going to have a remnant of that short temper. Maybe not exactly like your, fa- your father, but that is kind of a genetic samskara. You see, it's a genetic samskara. But from the Eastern perspective, they say it doesn't matter. Like, all samskaras can be dissolved or res- or transformed or, or resolved. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, I, we're, we're not really splitting hairs, but we, we're getting deeper into the discussion, I guess. But mm-hmm. it is difficult because if you... See, the thing is that we have to look at it in context too. Like, So if we look at the rishis and we look at the yogis or even the, the Tibetans thousands of years ago, there was no psychology. So we can talk about this differently from a psychological perspective because there is psychology, right? So personality types were not sort of, they weren't really known or, you know, the personality was just something to overcome. And so what they would say is that it doesn't matter what personality type, what temperaments you have, it can all be overcome if you follow this wheel of samskara, uh, samsara framework, because the the problem is not um, anything to do really with personality or temperament, it's to do with the whole persona itself. You see, so it's yeah. You are trying to basically transform your your mind. You're trying to dissolve yourself. Yeah, dissolve yourself and. You are trying to merge with Brahman completely. Completely. Yeah. And to be able to do that, you need to um, discover that pure state of consciousness, yes. which is always there, mm. but we just need to rediscover it. Well, the pure state of consciousness is not dependent on personality type, temperament. Pure consciousness is within the worst person you can think of in the world. They still have pure consciousness. Why they are the worst person in the world is because they over-identify with the jiva. They may have over-identified with the personality type and used that as an excuse for their own actions in the world. Yes, I'm this and I'm that. You identify with that certain type of person as yourself. and. And you just go with it. 
<laughs> One of the things that you and I have found with you know, me doing this work for a long time is people often try to make excuses for their life mm. and for the lives of other people. So they hear Eastern spirituality and they hear this framework and they say, yeah, but what about I'm like this and they're like that. And you're still trying to make an excuse. You're not applying the system to your state of being. First of all, because you don't want to dissolve the I. That's too overwhelming and dramatic. You don't have any interest in just being quiet and living a simple life. And you don't really want that. That's not your motivation. Your motivation is to live an extravagant life. So your deep motivations and your desires haven't been burnt out. When people say, I'm like this, I'm like that, the other person is like this or that, mm. that I would uh, question that. Yeah, of course. Because when you say that, that means that the way you are is concrete. Yeah, you so. assume that where you are is concrete. It's not changeable. Mm. But for myself, when I act a certain way that I didn't want it to, right? Mm. But it, it just it comes out, right? And like, why did I do that? Mm. Okay, this triggered it. Well, why did that trigger this action? I, I would question it yeah, because sure. I don't... Any, I believe anything can change. Anybody can change. Exactly. Right? People, well, uh, scientifically, our brain is fully formed around age 30 mm. in the human life. Mm. So there are a lot of people believe that after that age, it, things cannot change mm. and hard to change. And rah, rah, but I don't believe that. Well, neuroplasticity and all of those researchers have have debunked that kind of concrete mentality. And like what you said, everything is change, right? And this is, again, the argument of Eastern spirituality is that if everything is change, why is the human mind concrete? It's not. It's not. It's not. It's, that's a pretty ridiculous <laughs> uh, statement. It's not. Well, that's, that's why, like, how many times have we gifted the Tao Te Ching to someone, for example... It transformed their life because the Tao Te Ching, not just Taoism, but all of those other paths, they free you from the hypnosis that you're bound to this concrete version of yourself and it gets you out of absolutes. Now, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It goes back to the single life theory because the reason, one of the reasons that enhances this, oh, I, I don't change and this and that, this is me forever, this is part of single life theory. Because you think that you're never going to change form. You don't. This is just who you are. See, that's a hypnosis from the single life theory. And most people are coming into Eastern spirituality with that hypnosis. I don't change. This is who I am forever. But everything changes. Your body is changing right now. The, you go outside, the nature is changing. The only thing that's not changing is your mind and your personality. That's outrageous. Then your tendency to think that your mind is not going to change is way too strong. Way too strong, yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. But it's like what you said before when you're talking about absolutes. So, see, when you're attracted to a single life theory, you talk in absolutes. Mm. And, and what is a phrase that we're always, most people are used to? Never say never. That's an Eastern way of thinking, never say never. But we've we stepped away from never say never and we speak in absolutes. This is the way I am. This is the way it is. Is it? Is it? It's going to change. You know, like the, the farmer and the son story in Zen, right? We'll see. We'll see. 
the the farmer is never attached to an absolute conclusion or outcome because he he knows that life changes people are talking in these absolutes now when we're experiencing this pandemic right people speak in absolutes as if this is what's going to happen the farmer's still in the background we'll We'll see we'll see see after this we'll see after this we'll see what happens and we always have to be in resonance with that mentality because you're not in absolutes there's one absolute and that is brahman that's there's one reality and we're experiencing that subjectively and this localized awareness that we think is who we are i hear people say like from like whatever happened like on the weekend last weekend or something like oh that wasn't me or oh that's me that's me like what what kind of statement is that mm. i know that i know where they're coming from right yeah, sure. but for like for me and how where i the place where i grew up mm. there is no such statement mm. no like that's to say that you already identify yourself in a certain way and uh, comparing that to your reality or certain experience and that's not matching or not matching mm. meaning that your idea of who you are is so concrete in a very certain way mm. and that is to assume the single life theory pretty yeah. much things not gonna change this is me mm. and this is how I am who I am so that I like certain things and I dislike certain things, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we have to get out of that, that we keep affirming ourselves to be this concrete reality, like it's a bad habit, right? It, it just limits yourself from mm. being what you can be, really. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're constantly, you know, the identity, as we've spoken about many times, is limited. And it is, that is the reason what you're saying is that we're constantly believing in these in limitations i am this as soon as you say i am this you are limiting yourself from everything else you are solidifying yourself from everything else and this is a constant habit that we have this is a constant habit that the jiva has the jiva wants to keep affirming its reality Mm. as some sort of solid entity but in vedanta they use that that uh, a, a metaphor where you you know we are like the jar, but we are really the, the space within the jar. So once you smash the jar, the space within the jar merges with the space on the outside. Mm-hmm. But the jiva is the jar, and it's trying to hold your Atman in there. It's trying to say, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that infinite reality and that, that sort of stuff. That's all nonsense. Hold on to yourself as much mm-hmm. as you can, because if you let go, you know, the jar might smash, you know what I mean? There's no longer you. There's no longer you, yeah. Mm. And nothing, uh, yeah, exactly. Nothing makes people more afraid when there is no longer you, right? And so that's one of the big problems within when people come to Eastern spirituality because they think it's about self-improvement, self-development, enhancing their persona. It's it's completely the opposite. (laughs) What I really like about the Wheel of Samsara philosophy is that it kind of um, evaporates the fear of death. Mm. You elevate your perspective on death. Mm. Yep. Like, death is something what everyone wants to avoid, mm. right? Mm. But if you understand that philosophy, 
you may still be a little bit afraid, but you have a better understanding of what death means to you. Yeah. Right? Everything is born, mm. whatever is born, or to die, right? Mm, and again, that is a cycle of nature. Mm -hmm. And then we are that as well, so that we are going to go through that cycle as well. Mm. But because of which we are such um, consciously, intellectually evolved species, mm. we developed uh, this complex uh, psych psychological understanding of ourselves mm. so that we get to see death in a completely uh, different way if we choose to, right? Yeah. And when we understand that, um, the cycle of life from the Eastern traditions, we no longer have so much fear of death. You, you, you have much more understanding of that uh, you are part of something bigger than just yourself mm. and you are going to emerge with it when you uh, pass on, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's something very um, significant, I think. It is. Yeah. And that's why when we look at the funerals of the differences between Eastern and Western funerals, especially especially Hindu and Buddhist funerals, as opposed to, so let's, let's say, Christian funerals, there's more of a celebration in the East because... He's either he's either experienced moksha or he's, or he's on the on the wheel again. <laughs> either way, it's yeah, good. Yeah, it's yeah. all good. He's eventually going to reach moksha one day, maybe yes. in the next life. Whereas it's ironic because in, if we look at the Christian funerals or we look at Western funerals in general, it's very sad. It's not that people aren't sad in the East. Of course they are, but it's it, not as much. But in Western funerals or Christian funerals, everyone's sad. Everyone's wearing black. Everyone, it's a lot of grief. And when you think about it, if you believe in heaven from a Christian perspective, shouldn't you be actually happy? Happy because back with God, they don't have to experience, unless you think they're an extreme sinner and they've gone to hell. I mean. But it feels like every funeral they hold at the church feels like they treat the dead person as a sinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that dark and. Almost a bit like scary. And, and I think the underlying motivation, and I know there are a lot of philosophers actually agree with this, is that they think that that's just it for that being, because they don't they don't have a real belief in heaven. Because if you have a real belief in heaven and a real belief in, belief in Christ, you would be happy. They're Not you would obviously be sad because you miss your loved one, but in this, in another sense, you would be extremely happy that they've merged they've they're in heaven now they're with god they're with christ so and i think that's that's it's beautiful if you understand it that way but but i, but, but I don't think most people do understand it that way and i think we're supposed to believe in that way in yeah, christians and, yeah of course of yeah course, right yeah. yeah of course yeah but it doesn't seem that way no no mm. it seems as though that the single life theory is really just single life yeah you're born you die that's it that's it's it. it's game over and I think it's a very atheistic way of looking. Oh at it. yeah, very. And people are so fearful of uh, the fact that you are that person is going through somewhere that's so unknown, mm, right? Mm, yeah. A fear of unknown. The fear of the unknown. Yeah. 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 Right? 
yeah, that that way of looking at it seems much stronger yeah. than looking at, like you said, merge with the Christ and mm-hmm. go to heaven or whatnot. Because even in Christianity and and other Western religions, death has been treated as some sort of terrible thing that no one ought to experience. In general, people think about death that way, right? Like you said, people are all trying to avoid death and so forth and so on. We're trying all sorts of things to live as long as we can and we don't want to... And obviously, none of us want to experience physical pain and suffering, but we're going to. You know, sometime in our life, we will experience that. Uh, And I think that what the East do is instead of avoiding it, they lean straight into it. And then that's why you have in the East, you have Mm -hmm. things like death is, for example, like when they talk about someone like, say, let's say Ramana Maharshi, they don't say he died. He he went through Mahasamadhi. (laughs) So so like there's like the concept of death is even not even there. Not even there. Yeah. So Mahasamadhi, meaning the great Samadhi, he went into, you know, he, he merged with Brahman. Mm. But for other people, they'll say, oh, yeah, he passed away, but he's he's on the wheel again, you know. It's all good. <laughs> so, but for a great being, like say, someone like Ramana Maharshi or someone like the Buddha, you know, Parinirvana. Same, Parinirvana, Mahasamadhi, see? Same. That sounds something, makes so much sense mm. for me because... When we were in Bodh Gaya or in Chiruvannamalai, it's still in its presence at those places. Definitely. That's why instead of uh, to think that that um, being had gone, mm. passed away mm. in terms of birth and death, he went into Mahasamadhi. That makes sense because that place still has the strong, strong presence of him mm. and the Buddha. Yeah. And people still learn from yeah. being from that places, you know. And they still have Mahasamadhi practices. Like there's, mm. I've seen Mahasamadhi practices where they will dig a, like a, a four-meter pit for the master who's, who is dying and they'll put him down there. He sits in the lotus posture. They cover the thing over there. And that may be days before he dies, but he goes into complete darkness mm-hmm. too. So there, there is all this tradition still still mm-hmm. alive. If you were to do that in the West, they would think, these guys are crazy. Mm-hmm. They ought to be arrested. He should be in the hospital, this guy. He's going to die anyway. He might as well get him ready. They're, they're pre- preparing for death. And that's another thing. Like in the yogic tradition, life itself is a preparation for death. They look at it that way. So your life is a preparation for death. So what you're doing is you're trying to get rid of all of this stock, this karmic stock as you're alive. So you merge. So you go through Mahasamadhi when you die or Parinirvana. But if you got a lot of... See, when we look at karma or we look at the jiva, we're talking about weight, right? We're talking about heaviness. When you are identified with a persona, you feel heavy, right? Like Because like... Emotions are heavy from that place. There's, a, there's kind of like a weight to it. But when you get rid of it, there's a lightness about yourself. And we're talking in, in weight here, like a lightness, not light. And that lightness is, a, 
is able to merge with Brahman or Tao mm. or, or whatever you want to call it mm. on death. But if there's a heaviness, mm-hmm. the heaviness, it's, it's also affected by gravity, like a metaphysical gravity that brings you back down into the womb. Mm. And then... It's, you kind of get dropped right back <laughs> in. Almost. It's trying to float up, but it's like, oh, it's no, too heavy. No, no. I didn't, Not didn't, this didn't time. get that job at Wall Street, did I? God damn it. I wanted that chick. Okay. Still more to still more to do. To do. Yeah. <laughs> more to achieve. More to achieve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And see, that's why in Buddhism we speak about. You and I have spoke about this many times before. But when when Buddhism speak about the end of will and the end of volition, uh, that frightens a lot of people. They're talking about that because it gets rid of that heaviness of the person. Because from the Buddhist perspective, the this the ego is an illusion. It never existed. And so you're pretending to be like this stage character that doesn't really exist. And the stage character is very convinced, convincing because you do have personality types and you do have a genetic uh, imprints. imprints and you do have conditioning from socialization. It's convincing. But then when you apply the Buddhist meditation and technology and you understand the path of the Buddha, then you go, man, this is all, all bogus. Why do I feel lighter and feel more myself when I'm not acting out of will and I'm not uh, following my desires? Mm-hmm. Why is there a lightness to myself? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is what people should ask psychologists. Oh, they, but they'll have an, they have an answer for everything. You know, <laughs> you know so there'll, there'll be some sort of answer. But you can't deny the reality that you feel lighter, you feel, you feel more of a connection with everything else. It's a state of consciousness that's uh, way above the state of the, the jiva, the state of perception, the dualistic state. Mm. So that's kind of what we're doing in the Wheel of Samsara framework. Is you're trying to, exp- trying to get rid of all of those, that heavy tendencies and, and imprints, mm. which allows you to merge. Oh, not just... On death, you know what I mean? And this, again, goes to the differences between Jivan Mukta and Bodhisattva, right? Because Bodhisattva, as we were talking about before, you're trying, you're not, you're not content until there's a liberation of all beings. So you come back life after life after life after life to, you know, you're a very, so to speak, pious uh, Buddha. Yeah, um, in certain sects of Buddhism, um, they strive to be born as bodhisattva. Yeah. And it's their point of view. But I don't know. I'm not so convinced. The thing is that you know, if the Buddha was to speak, he's, he's talking about nirvana and liberation. Yeah. Again, the concept of bodhisattva came later mm. than the early teachings of Buddhism. Right. We're going into Mahayana here. We're going, we're going a bit later. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand the bodhisattva principle, but even in Buddhist circles, you should always be striving for liberation. You should be striving for nirvana. The Eastern paths, especially the Indian paths, are, are, are liberation-focused. So there sh- you shouldn't... you know. Again, it, it kind of contradicts the whole Eastern mentality. If you're trying to be pious and come back and life after life, so forth and so on. 
that's why I made that video a few years ago about Jivan Mukta versus Bodhisattva um, from that perspective because the Jivan Mukta does not want to promote or influence the world with their own agendas because first of all an agenda comes from the jiva it's when you're in the atman or you're in your buddha nature there's there is nothing yeah you don't you just act and that's it that's it yeah you don't have any attraction to the world anymore it's yeah. you're gone beyond yeah you have no point to prove and no. nothing you may be put into the place of a teacher just because people can sense that I mean, this guy is like, he's not, he has no dramas at all. He's not fooled by reality. And then you may teach in that life, as the Buddha did, as Ramana did, as these great beings did, but still they're doing their work and they, you know, they, they're out of here. They checked out of the game, you know. And so that's what we should always be focused on. We shouldn't be focused on actually being a Bodhisattva. It doesn't mean. You know, that you shouldn't uh, have the quality of an Avalokiteshvara like a Bodhisattva, you know, being very compassionate, forgiving, kind. But that's that's our nature anyway. The reason why we don't resonate, or the reason why we are detached from that those innate qualities of being a human is because of socialization and conditioning and this promotion of self-interest and, and self-preservation. And so we have to get out of those evolutionary needs and step into our higher nature. And so that happens when we begin to apply the tools that we were speaking about before, which have an effect on our karma, our vasanas, and our samskara. So we should talk about that. So again, when you're when you're having when you're not reacting out of your out of your karma then that's having an effect on your vasanas, mm. you see, your habits and tendencies. But you can't just do this for 24 hours and yeah. think that things are going to change. Remember, you've had these vasanas for a, a lifetime. Long time, yeah. And lifetimes. Lifetimes. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, not just this not lifetime. Not just this life. And so when you're doing that constantly and you're like, I'm not going to react emotionally here, even though I have the emotion, it's here, it's up in the throat, mm. and it's about to just, Speak. I'm going to try and just mm. swallow it like swallowing your vomit, you know, which is an uncomfortable feeling, right? But then, and this is also an uncomfortable feeling. So, and so then that consistent practice of vairagya and viveka has an effect on the vasana. So, starting to transform the habits and tendencies, and then that's what gets you down into the deeper level, into the, the subconscious, because the subconscious is going, man. But this is this is how you always react. What the hell are you doing? But it's at a subconscious level, so how do you dig into it? Well, you have to affect your actions and your and your actual habits and tendencies, because those subconscious that can't it's it's beneath conscious beneath your awareness. Yes. So that's this is the only way to get down there. Obviously, with practices of the parsana and and practices like that, where you get down into the sensory vedana level, that transforms the samskaras as well. Obviously, everyone should be practicing meditation who is listening and watching this podcast, but. Just this course of action we were speaking about is what is the first course of action to transform your samskaras. It has to be on a relational uh, level that you have with the world. Yeah, like time when you're awake, basically. Yeah, time when you're awake, yeah. Mm. 
So when things are happening in your life, the experiential reality, then you have to be observing yourself and seeing if you're acting out of that emotional state. or And, you, and if you do, you don't make this a, a good or bad thing, but just note it that, oh, I slipped up there, but I'll do better later. Yeah. Come back and, you know. You, If you come to uh, acknowledge, acknowledge that mm. moments later, mm. then... Yeah, that's still good. You're aware of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're aware you're, of it. You're aware yeah. of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you will get better in practicing this. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about it. I look at myself from way back in when I was in my 20s to now, and this is almost like two different people. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And so through like Vipassana, that intense meditation will uh, give you... Um, a deeper level of um, cleansing. Yes. That, yeah. yeah. Mm. You're going down with the mob. <laughs> and Vedana is... Is the sensory... It's the senses, basically. Senses. It's the sensorium, they would say. Uh-huh. Pali. Vedana is a Pali word for like the sensorium. Right. And so what you're doing is when you're practicing Vipassana is that you're, you are putting your awareness on those senses in your body and those senses are related to you know the impulses that fuel your your vasanas and your action so that's where the samskaras are so they're saying that if you are observant of that mm-hmm. and you're not acting you're just observing them you're not acting out of them then this um has a has a deep effect on the samskaras mm-hmm. so you're down there with the soap and the mop and the basement is getting pristine clean but obviously, it just takes time. Mm. And you need to apply to get down to that level. You have to apply anapanasati, so awareness of respiration or breath. And then you get down, then you can start to feel the sensations in, in your body at the root level in the nervous system. And that's actually, see, see, see everything we've accumulated right through the nervous system. So we, our nervous system has all of this knowledge stored in it, and, which is part of the subconscious. And so we're trying to like override the existing software, so to speak. It almost looks like that we have some skaravasanas and karma in a psychological um, realm, mm. but that's exactly the same in the bodily realm bodily as well. Realm, yeah. It's got its own samskaravasanas and yeah. karma. And the East don't really make a distinction do they between oh right there's this is brain right this is brain mm-hmm. hence you practice tai chi qigong hatha yoga obviously you do you know there is a lot of focus on the mind mm-hmm. because the as rudolf steiner said the human body is like an upside down tree so we're taking nutrients we're taking experience in through the nervous system and that's becoming our mind mm-hmm. That's storing. That's storing. So, you know, you turn the human upside down. It's like a tree, right? The nervous system, just like a tree, the the tree takes in the nutrients through the, you know, through what it experiences in the rain and the air and, you know, becomes a strong trunk and so forth and so on. Yeah, like when we do um, sitting meditation, when you go, I mean, deep enough to sense what arises within you, for example, Mm. A certain desires come up, right? Mm. Just out of nowhere, it usually does. Mm. And 
if you are in a deep state, then you will be able to recognize how your nervous system reacts to that desire that arises, right? Yep. Yep. And you are observing it. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. And you more you get to do it, more like a vivid it becomes when mm. you're conscious as well. Yeah. Right. And when you do that over and over again, then you start to slowly changing your the vasana, mm, mm. samskaras and vasana. Yep. That you you see that some sort of desire comes up. For example, oh, I want to eat that um, chocolate cake. Just out of the blue, right? Mm-hmm. Then what happens? Then your mouth might get watery. <laughs> your, I'm um, watering right now. Because <laughs> you have memory in the past that mm. you had that experience of eating chocolate cake, yeah. for example, right? You will certain in uh you will remember a certain place where you ate the delicious chocolate cake and because it's it's isn't it interesting our brain the nervous system remembers all these things Mm. right but if you get to catch it uh this is what happens when this desire comes up right you kind of um uh giving a a bit of a like a yeah recognition yeah there's like, consequences to your actions. Well, that's it. So, it's, uh, job is to recognize it mm. every time. Every time, yeah. Uh, yeah, as much as possible. Because you have to get down to that level. Yeah. If you're not down that nervous system level, yeah. you're going to keep existing patterns. Right. Re- going to continue to reoccur. Mm. You're going to have eight. 1,000 chocolate cakes in 10 years mm. and you're going to be <laughs> you know, the yeah. size of a house. Yeah. So mm. there are, it's, see, the samskaras is like an exist, is a reoccurring existing pattern that just mm. continues to unfold until you place your awareness on the, the nervous system. You got to put light on, on that. On that. Yeah. Yeah. Which transforms it. Yeah. That's what Viragya is doing. Viragya is trying to get you out of, in a sense, taking in the experience. Like it's trying to, the, you know, part of the reason in Eastern spirituality they say to get over worldliness is because they don't want you to take in. This is what Pratyahara is, right? Pratyahara is a withdrawal of the senses. Right. How do we, you know, let's use the eight limbs of yoga, right? How do we get into the, the inner limbs of yoga? You know. Dharana, jhana, samadhi, the three higher limbs. How do we get into those states? And that's why prachahara is the gateway. Prachahara, you're saying... Withdraw. I'm withdrawing. Mm. Because if I keep engaging in this reality, I keep accumulating samskaras, which keep messing up my right. my pattern, my, my daily pattern of existing. And if you're not practicing prachahara, then your chances of overcoming your samskaras and in this is almost null and void because you're not withdrawing from the world and overcoming worldliness that's why there's i, I read something by swami nihilananda nihilananda and then nikilananda let me get that right <laughs> <laughs> a thousand attempts but i read something from him and <clears throat> he, he's not only saying this but he said that 
you can't experience samadhi in some sense if you are if you are in, engaged in the world and involved in the world you have to almost uh, almost be a recluse and have distance from the world hence why you know there's traditions such as the Theravada forest tradition there's I mean how many times have we been in the forest forest tradition and and the master has said always talking about monkey mind that's going on in the city here no monkey mind um and also like all of these other great traditions like the Taoist hermits and the zen hermits and you know the yogis and the rishis and so forth and so on the reason why they're at a distance from society is because of this this just this habit that you're going to accumulate experiences that are going to affect your nature no matter what you, or going to affect your samskaras no matter how you want to think about that so it's important to practice pratyahara the withdrawal of the senses and focus on the again drana arises after that right concentration so you can concentrate easier on your system and the concentration then leads to jhana meditative absorption which then opens up the gateway to samadhi mm. you know the complete unif- reunification with brahman or, or, or purusha to use yogic term terminology so you have that process and and that's something that a lot of us ought to consider and a lot of people don't consider this because they again are in the habit of trying to defend their way of life and so forth and so on and if you're in that habit you're not ready for eastern spirituality because you can't keep defending your life you know when you realize that your life is not in sync with the way nature is and the way of the universe then you have to you know you have to come to terms with that and you have to move in a different direction we've all had to grow up and learn that we all have to let go of ourselves to let that in to your life you know what i mean let brahman or dao into your life but if you're holding on to yourself you can't it's it's impossible and that's why all of what we've been talking about we have to do the work of the observation of the nervous system to get down into the samskaras to affect you know your vasanas and, and your karma and then once the once you've overcome that as i mentioned earlier once you've over once you've mopped and you've spit polished the whole samskara basement then it's not the jiva anymore acting you just you become just a limb of shiva you're just acting in the world but not attached to the fruits of your action isn't that you are acting authentically acting this is like this is like uwe right effortless living this is this intelligent spontaneous uh, response to the world where you're acting immediately and appropriately to every each and every situation you have a mind of no deliberation a mind of deliberation comes from when you're a person and you're analyzing the environment due to your own self-interest and self-preservation. Mm. How is this going to benefit me? You know, then you start thinking like, should I have input here? Whereas if there was no if there's no one in here, then you just boom, you just act mm. with all, and it doesn't matter if people agree with what you did or not. It's done. You walk away. It's gone. So always the, there is the the sunyata yeah. It's it's empty. Empty. No, no, nothing. No agenda. No opinion. You act because that's uh, right yep. thing to do. Yeah. Mm. That's the valley spirit, as they say in mm-hmm. Taoism. The valley spirit. The valley that 
space, that emptiness, that just acting accordingly to the appropriate and immediately to each and every situation. And that's a frightening position for most of us because when you tell people, you just have to keep emptying out, mm. empty, 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 empty. People, they, they like, they're, they're, cause, because not just in the West, but also in the East, most people are accustomed to filling up. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> fill, 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 yeah. fill. And if we fill, then we will find this happiness and contentment. Mm. But as we know, especially if we look at the, the cup analogy in Taoism, you have to, if you keep filling the mind cup, so to speak, it overflows and that leads to anxiety and stress, depression, suicide and so forth mm. and so on. But if you're constantly emptying the cup, mm. then what you're valuing then is the space within the cup. You're not valuing the cup itself and, 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 and the contents of the cup. Mm. You're valuing the space within the cup. Mm. The valley spirit, the spirit of the valley yeah, yeah, yeah. in Taoism. Mm. People are looking at the mountains and this and that, but no one's looking at the actual valley. the valley itself. Yeah, again, without the valley, you don't see the mountains. Exactly. Mm. Mm. So you need that. So the space, right, the emptiness, like you said, the shunyata. Mm. And Buddhism has a big focus, obviously, on coming back to shunyata. Yeah, yeah. Because that's all that really exists. Mm. The filling of the cup that's going to overflow and it's going to drain out when when time comes mm. you know yeah mm, and to be able to be in this state we we have to sit with the dark side of ourselves and we often brush it off actually like ah oh, this is happened because of that and oh, just move on there's time to be doing it and there's no time to be doing it mm. and to sit with that mm. i think it troubles a lot of people yeah. you know we we just can't handle it mm. like mm. we're not resilient and patient enough mm. but once we purely just give a good look for a good period of time, then it kind of dissolves itself. Mm. And whatever that might be, it could be fear, desire, anything. Mm. And if you just look at it, like, like like, like, just like what people say to sun gaze, <laughs> gazing it, and um, I think you should, you gotta be able to sit with it and be able to look at it with the really honest eyes. Mm. Then we can empty it out. Yep. Yeah. And that's something mm, a lot of us are so fearful of doing it. Well, it's like Carl Jung's analogy, right? Like you kind of turning light towards the darkness mm -hmm. the stuff that you don't want to look at or, mm -hmm. the, or the the being you don't want to look at that you yeah. think you are the persona is just you're pointing in the light being here awareness mm -hmm. you're pointing the awareness there mm -hmm. and you're going okay i'm sick of this game mm -hmm. i'm completely sick of it it, it only causes me trouble mm -hmm. you know and it's kind of sad because a lot of people and not a lot of people but there is a there is a majority of people that come to eastern spirituality because 
they are just sick of uh, their persona causing trouble with other people and mm. and they know that they are a hindrance to society. Mm. So it's good that they are aware of that. But there's also a lot of people who are just not coming to Eastern spirituality just because you know, of, of, its, of its own accord, you know, like of their own interest in meditation and so forth and so on. But I guess that, you know, that there's a purity in that where people understand that, oh, man, I'm, I'm causing a lot of people a lot of drama around here. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sick of being myself. Mm-hmm. And this looks like a solution to the problem. And then they get involved in it, like you said, but then they, they get a bit worried because they're like, oh, man, but I'm, it, it exposes their attraction to themselves too, you know. Mm-hmm. Because to get over yourself takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. We're not at the psychiatrist here or the psychologist where it, we're at this age, it's a bit of a different story. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like what, uh, transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation, yeah. And things like that. The people use this Eastern spiritual practice and modify in certain way mm-hmm. to benefit their social life mm-hmm. and status and whatnot. Um, I guess there definitely is um, good reason for that and that they obviously a lot of people have been benefiting from mm. it mm. but that's not the end goal and also like when you mentioned about like hermits and the people who stay away from society and mystics and Himalayas and those people, for those people, they took this path with both hands mm. and they fully dived into it, right? Mm. But to remain in society, it can still help you, but I think there is a limit where you can use these practices as just like a psychological therapy. Mm. It's limited that how far you can go with these practices. Mm. This may come in contact with the world in with the conflict, mm. actually, right? Mm. Yep. Because um, you don't want to be in the society in a sense, but there is no other option mm. but to be in, mm. right? I guess for a lot of people, yep. be in the same situation. Mm. But I don't know. It, it, you can take it to benefit your own spiritual growth as well, mm. somehow. Mm. But there is definitely that. There is a bit of a like a conflict and a bit of a friction there as well. That like a, as an obstacle for our spiritual growth. Well, it's like two opposing worlds colliding, right? Like mm. you got. You know, you got your social life, your your business oriented life, your life based on money and so yeah. forth and so on. Then you've got this other life that's coming into your life that's a spiritual life about meditation, about the dissolution of the eye. So the people don't know much about that that are interested in that mm. thing, in that sort of you know, turning spirituality into a commodity. But then you have these two worlds verging, converging on each other, and then you have like you said, there can be a friction with people too because 
if they go deeper into the study, then they think, wow, Jesus, this is a bit overwhelming, you know what yeah. I mean? Like if they want to know more about meditation and so forth and so on. Again, we talked about this before, that how in, in your in environment is not reflect on your psychological state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just a lot of us are experiencing it. And I try to see it as an opportunity to grow out of that, mm. using the situation. Yeah, for sure. But obviously, eventually, you want to be somewhere that you want to be in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You don't. You don't. You're not going to get a Mickey Mouse badge for sucking it up and, nah. and going. Look! Look how strong I've I am. I've done it. That's still. That's still the ego. Yeah. You know, naturally, when you come back to more quietude, more simplicity in your life, because that's our true intrinsic nature, you're going to also yearn for that in this world, yeah, out here as well. Mm. You're not going to want to live in the city anymore, so to speak, you know what I mean? Unless you had some sort of situation in the city that was a very quiet and simple way of living. And, and you're not going to want the job that keeps you on the grind from nine to five. You, you're not going to yearn for that. That's why most uh, great spiritual practitioners or great spiritual people in general have lived uh, away f- away from society. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. I, I don't think... See, this is another thing, another habit that happens with a lot of modern spiritual people. They, they always take things as a, as a badge of honor. Oh, I can just stay in society now and suck it up and look at me. And it's like, no, you're still... You're still an individual. You're still egocentric. There's nothing wrong with living a simple life and moving away from life and not being associated to life. Actually, if you look at it from the Laozian perspective, Laozi is saying that's actually part of the end game is to live away from society because first of all, you don't accumulate any more vasanas and samskaras. Your karma is completely cleansed out. The yogic traditions like this as well, right? Hence why a yogi doesn't stay in a city or, or a place for longer than a few days because they know that you start to accumulate the habits and tendencies of the community. Yeah. So that's why a yogi is always on the move because life is change, life is motion, see? And so they're moving with life. Yeah. That's why they have minimal possessions and they just they eat when they can eat and sleep when they can sleep. Yeah, like in the book I read by Ramdas, he uh, had this analogy saying that um, there is a one common thing between um, stagnant water and yogi. It goes rotten when it stays in one spot for too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah, isn't it? So always in motion yeah. to purify. And there's, a, there's an insight there, isn't there? Because when you look at people who stay in, say, one location for a long time, this isn't... I don't want to overgeneralize it, but let's say there's a lot of people like this that they they have a certain way about themselves that kind of reflects what Ramdas was saying, right? And what the yogis are saying. So there's a truth to it, right? Yeah. And we've all experienced that. Like we've all lived in a location for a long time where you start to accumulate the habits and tendencies of that place. And if you're a spiritual person, you begin to notice that and you're yep. like, oh man, I'm becoming someone that I ought not to be. That's, that's a good time to make a move, eh? It's a good time to make a move, 100%. 100%, because if you're observant, it's, 
it doesn't matter what it costs to make that move or whatever. Yeah. Because your spiritual liberation is the highest thing of yeah. of all. So when you start to notice that, you're like, man, I'm starting to act like an Australian, for example. I think it's time to roll out. Yeah, it's time to make a move. Time to make a move. <laughs> so, but that's a really good point because you know it it will inhibit your from especially from a yogic perspective, from a Taoist perspective, it'll inhibit your spiritual practice. The only time a stagnant life is beneficial for you <clears throat> is if it's in nature and you're in solitude and you're in quietitude and you're just really centered on your own liberation. Yeah, like great sages did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And are doing still. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you go up to the Himalayas and there's, there's tons of them. They're just not on YouTube. You know, just, just unseen. Unseen. And that's exactly what they want. Just because you're not dressed up like a, a, a guru and, and on YouTube doesn't mean that they're not enlightened or more enlightened, I should say, than people on YouTube who are dressed up as guru and, and actually are more about... Yeah, those are the ones that you've got to be aware of. Yeah, they're more about influence and mm. so forth and so on. So, though some of them are genuine, but there are a lot that are not as genuine. Mm. But... That, that, that also is a, a part of what we've been talking about, that kind of seclusion and simplicity that we should also seek in trying to transcend the wheel of samsara. You know, the Buddha didn't go and set up his school in <clears throat> you know, a big location. He went to Saranath, you know, just outside Benares, Varanasi, and <clears throat> you know, it began there. And on his search to uh, liberation, he went to Bodgai, which is, I mean, there would have been no one there at the, at the time. Just a tree. Just a tree mm-hmm. beside a river and off you go. So, you know, we, we have to also consider that, that the way we uh, structure our life, in a sense, is important as well. Mm. And that comes back to what we were talking about with Prachahara. See, Prachahara, you're trying to orient your life from that Prachahara perspective, the withdrawal of the senses. Mm. Obviously, a natural life in nature, if you have the opportunity to live in the Himalayas in a cottage away from society, you know, close to food and, and so forth, but centered on your own meditation practice, Shanti, Shanti, guaranteed this life, Mahasamadhi, you know. <laughs> so, but if you're in the city, it's it's hard to, or if you're in a, crowded environment it's hard to practice the withdrawal of the senses because your senses are constantly bombarded and though a lot of us will try to eat our vitamins and suck it up and so forth and so on it's still affecting you somewhat at, at, a, at a samskaric level yeah. in the subconscious mm. so the way to transcend your karma and all of this wheel of samsara framework is to get over actually the experiential realm because it's the experience itself which keeps the the jiva alive. Mm. You know, the Torya, the fourth aspect of the, the the four states of consciousness. So we have waking, dreaming, dreamless sleep, and Torya, the fourth. Torya being the reality of Atman. When you're see, what is Torya? It's beyond experience. You see, see even waking, experiential. Dreaming, still experiential. Even dreamless sleep, still experiential. There's still 
someone or some uh, thing experiencing the dreamless sleep. Mm. But Toria is beyond all experience. Mm. And that's what exists when we begin to transcend that wheel of samsara because samsara in a sense is trying to keep you engaged in the experiential realm into in those three states of consciousness which keeps you then chugging along life after life and you know keeps you in a cyclical pattern in your own life mm. of experiencing your own karma in this life over and over and over again yeah. how come i can't break this pattern well you're not being observant enough of yourself you're still attracted to the experiential realm the complete annihilation of the subjectivity. Yep. That's what it is. That's the state of Turiya we we should all get to. Yeah. Mm. You're essentially going beyond everything. Yes. Going beyond everything mm. that, that, that you can conceive of. Yeah. Doesn't mean you won't exist as a person. You still function, you know, you still mm. take a crap, you still do all these things, you still eat, you still enjoy people's company. But your state of being is at a different, is in a different state. Yeah. You're not attracted to the waking, the dreaming, or the dreamless sleep state of consciousness. You've come back to the Turiya. Mm. You exist in the Turiya. Mm. All that exists is the Turiya, yeah. actually. All that exists is Brahman. Mm. But our subjectivity and our attraction to the experiential realm keeps us creating and enhancing this jiva which then lives life after life after life. Yeah. And so we have to transcend that. Mm. And I think that's what we're doing on, well, hopefully speaking a lot about mm. on this podcast, isn't it? So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just that short film that we watched yesterday, that um, the Indian, yeah, Indian film, that um, this guy tried to get his friend to the cave, pitch dark, can't pitch see dark. anything. Mm. Yeah. And his friend is so afraid to go in because it's too dark, right? Yeah. Mm. And he just keeps saying, come here, come here, it's okay, come here. <laughs> and then he went in and just can't see anything, nothing. And then, well, that's what literally what his friend said, right? Mm. Can't see anything. Mm. Mm. This is the absolute reality. Only, there's only darkness, nothing exists. There is no you or me, there is no image. That he said, feel it, get comfortable with it. Yep. And th that is what the Turiya. That's the Turiya, yeah. That's like in the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching. Mm -hmm. The darkness within darkness, the gateway to all mystery. And we're always trying to get away from that, but like in the Yoga Asana, Elevating the Consciousness the film that we watched, you know, feel that. Stop being afraid of that. Mm. You know, feel it. And then there's something else. See? You're afraid of going into the cave and into the darkness because what does that do? It eliminates not just the jiva, it eliminates the body. Yeah. You're not even in the body no more. Mm. That's frightening, right? He said the body, everything's lie. Everything's a lie. The body is a lie. But that's also from the Vedantic perspective, right? Mm. Everything's a lie. You're not this body, you're not this mm. mind. Actually, none of it existed mm. from Gautapada's perspective. Doesn't exist. You're you're hypnotized into believing it exists. Right. There's only Brahman. Mm. You're just getting around as Brahman mm. in this body, and you think, yeah. "Well, look at this suit. You know, look yeah. at this suit. It's good, yeah. isn't it?" It's like, 
no, no, it's going to die. Mm. And this suit's only been around for like a, not even a fragment of the universe's existence. Mm. And you think that this is the be-all and end-all of life. Get comfortable, like you said within that film, get comfortable within the darkness, within darkness. The eternal, tr the eternal mm. abode, the reality. Because that's all that really is mm. there, right? Yeah. So. Really good. Mm. Really good, yeah. Yeah. I think we covered a lot. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. There's a lot to speak about when we talk about samsara, also reincarnation. Mm. But yeah. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. And again, it's people have to consider, have to look at what we're talking about from the many lives perspective and not mm. from a single life perspective. Yep. Because if you're trying to, this is again a problem with Westerners, especially is they always looking at Eastern spirituality from a Christian indoctrination. Even though they may think they're atheist or so forth and so on, they are subtly indoctrinated with Christian perspectives of single life theory, of, you know, absolute absoluteness, as, as you were speaking about. Yeah. So you have to come to this and look at it mm -hmm. from the mentality of an Easterner. Yes. Many lives theory, there's no absolutes. Mm -hmm. There's only one absolute, which is Brahman, and it's everything. Mm. But there's no absolutes as in yourself, your jiva. Yeah. You might think you're this way, that way, this way, this way. You're not. Mm. It can all be transcended. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, guys, I hope you, hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll see you guys next week.